business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now. Welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now. On today's podcast, I got the chance to interview Roman Basie. And Roman is the president of the Center for Financial, Legal, and Tax Planning. And I've I've heard him speak, oh, it's got to be at least five times over my career, <clears throat> at different M&A conferences. And he is one of the most sought-after sessions. Anytime you go to, to visit or anytime you go to um, see him, the room is filled, and he doesn't disappoint on this episode either. It, it will be hard you it will be hard pressed for any business owner not to have received some value from this. So Roman is, like I said, they they are that their practice is, you know, I see them as deal making. You know, they they help all of all of the deal makers and make better deals for their clients. <clears throat> and he, like I said, he is a, he is a sought after speaker. He goes across the country back and forth talking about how to maximize value. Um, you know, his core competencies are business valuation, succession planning, tax planning, and buying and selling a business. And, and like I said, he is just, he was so generous with, with his time as well as all the rapid fire answers to my questions. And I am not a tax guy, but boy, he, he sure educated me. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Roman Basie. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome Roman Basie of Basie Basie and Associates. I should point out today that this is not legal or tax or accounting advice. Roman's been kind enough to come on on the on the show. He is not your he, he's not your accountant or attorney yet. So seek your own counsel regarding any kind of advice we may give. So Roman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. Uh, well. Like I was saying before we started, I'm a I'm a super fan. I never, whenever I go to these conventions, I don't get the opportunity to, to um, you know, ask the questions that that I that I've been meaning to. You know, I, I take my notes, but everybody seems to to lunge forward and and I don't want to say rock star status, but from in the in the the deal making world, you you have one heck of a reputation on helping sellers really maximize the value or the proceeds of their sales. So, so I guess where I'd like to start is how did, how did you, it seems, it seems as though you do have a, a little bit of a niche with the sell side advisors. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into that? We do. And, and that's an interesting question. I don't get that question very often, but you know, my father started our company back in the late eighties, early nineties, and he was a professor uh, at Southern Illinois University and Penn State University. And I joined him yep. in 1997. And he started doing a lot of research and writing 
about okay. small businesses in the United States. And companies started to call him, uh, help wanting advice and information on what to do when they sold or when they created a succession plan or when they just didn't know what to do. And we have a niche because like my father, I'm an attorney and a CPA. Now he also has a PhD in economics. However, I am also a real estate broker and a title insurance agent. So our niche comes in because when we represent a small business in the United States, and I, I say small business, but that's defined as anything less than $50 million in assets or less. So the majority of privately held companies are small privately held companies. And when we get involved in these, they see us as, oh, you are our legal counsel, our accounting counsel, our financial counsel, our real estate counsel. And that's what makes up a company um, besides human resources and employees and insurance and things like that. So we have kind of are a one-stop shop with the exception of the brokering or the M&A guidance piece where we <laughs> look to gentlemen like you where that is where most of our referral base comes from is brokers and advisors like yourself. But outside of that, it's a one-stop shop. And that's what created our niche yeah. over all these years. Well, and it's funny and it truly is a niche because you're a fixture. At, uh, you know, you, you, it's funny that the, the, the conferences that I attend it, you always have either the house is full for your session or it's full and there's some folks standing around and, and it, it really is. It, it's a, I, I've learned an awful lot about, about things that even though I've been in the business for 30 years, I, I you, you, you've shared a number of things that have helped a lot of our clients. So let me, let me, let me start off with everybody. Every business owner knows that there's a, there's, you can sell business with the, the assets or you can sell the stock. Every seller wants to sell the stock and we, we, we know that. So I, I guess from a high level, can you just, can you kind of give the, the lay of the land for stock and asset sales? Yeah. I mean, from a very high level speaking, right. A seller is generally going to say to me, to you, well, I heard it's best to sell our stock because we're going to get capital gain treatment on the sale of our stock, which capital gains rates are traditionally lower than your ordinary income tax rates. An asset sale, they're going to tell us, well, I heard that's going to be mostly ordinary income tax to me if I sell the assets of my business. And those are the two, those are generally speaking, the two ways to sell a business. Are we selling the assets on the balance sheet and nothing else? Or are we selling the stock of the company, which is selling everything, everything that's on the balance sheet and everything that's not on the balance sheet is a stock sale. And those are the two high-level ways to look at those. There are hybrid methods that are becoming more used now, considerably more used now over the last couple of years, where you combine the elements of an asset sale and a stock sale, believe it or not. And for a lot of sellers listening today, they may be saying, what? There's a way to do both, and there is a way to do both, and there's reasons sometimes to do both. Well, let's just dive in. I mean, I know we, I, I had it on my list to, to talk about. Let, let's just go ahead and talk the hybrids. I mean, you got the momentum. Yeah. So one of the hybrids that we see a lot of is with an S corporation, with a flow through entity. And it's the section that we have is three, um, 338 transaction, 338 H10 transaction. And what that is in general is selling the stock of a company for legal purposes 
and selling the assets of the company for tax purposes. Now, why do we need that to happen in some cases? Because the buyer is going to essentially get the stock of the business. So they may be getting certain licenses or certain contracts or certain royalty agreements that are very, very difficult to transfer. I'm going to give you a prime example of one that I did. And it was a white water rafting company in Colorado. Now imagine a whitewater rafting company. They've got these large rafts, hundreds of them. Each one of them has a federal license on them that they can be on that federal waterway. Do you know how difficult it is to obtain a federal license like that? So a buyer wanting to buy that company is not going to be able to buy the asset, buy the raft, and then apply for a license with the federal government. It would take years. So we use a 338H10, which what that does is the buyer gets the stock of the business. So they own the raft and they own the license. But a buyer also wants a stepped up basis in the raft, like they were buying it as an asset only. And so in this particular transaction, they get a stepped up basis in the asset, yet they bought the stock of the company and now the buyer can redepreciate the raft. Right. That's why you see a 338H10. A lot of the times with medical practices, I'm even involved right now potentially in the sale of a very, very large designer company that has a royalty agreements associated with it. And we are looking at a 338H10 for that transaction. So now from a seller side, as we know, we, as you said, my niche is sellers, even though we do represent buyers, my real niche, 75% of our deals, if not a little bit more are for sellers. What happens with a seller? Well, a seller has some potential negative taxation to a 338H10. And in the typical transaction, the seller, we will do an analysis. We will do what we call our tax minimization analysis. And we will show the seller what the negative tax treatment, or if there isn't negative, to a 338 is. And traditionally, the purchase price should be grossed up by the buyer to account for that negative taxation to the seller because the buyer is getting the benefit of the stepped-up basis of that raft. So that's a 338H10, again, high level for you. Yeah, but uh, so the the biggest reason to deploy a 338 is is predominantly to assign contracts, right? That's contracts right. licensure. That's right. Okay. Okay. So the think about also think about this. I don't mean to cut you off, but no, think about a company that has a lot of vehicles or a lot of oh. equipment and the buyer doesn't want to have to transfer title to all of those and pay sales tax and pay use taxes and transfer taxes and relicensing fees. So this is more useful in more companies than what we even think about. And we see 338s done with companies with lots of equipment because they avoid all of that relicensing. Well, and we're, we're seeing a, a, even without the licensure issue, it's it's just – it seems as though the whole motivation is a tax treatment. It doesn't matter. It's I mean are you seeing that too or am, am I imagining things? No, the whole motivation is the buyer gets that tax treatment. They get that step up in basis. They get to redepreciate the assets and yet they don't have to recreate an entire corporation yeah. structure. It's there for them. 
so why don't why don't more people do it? Why isn't that just totally the the main the 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 main way of transferring businesses? It's a complicated tax analysis, and that's why most accountants are not familiar with it. They don't want to analyze it. They just think it's too complicated to kind of deal with. A seller is dealing with so many other things in their mind right. going to market. Complicating it with a 338 can be very difficult if the seller's not educated. I'll give you this one too. I represented a behavioral health clinic and right. I told them from the very beginning, this, this smells like it's going to be a 338. It smells like it's going to be a 338. We get the 60 page asset agreement two weeks prior to closing. And sure enough, what's in there? A 338 clause. That's right. why these things don't have traction because sellers are not educated. Buyers throw them in at the last minute from their legal or tax counsel and it blows things up. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, it, it just seems as though, you know, Google has, has, has educated a lot of sellers it, wrong or, or otherwise. And the, and again, they, they show up wearing the, the, you know, the, the t-shirt that says, I want a 338. And, and it just, it just doesn't always go that way. You know, you are absolutely right. We had a seller contact us about a year ago. And the seller's email or reference said, well, I've been hearing that I want a 338. And I'm like, why do you, why do you why, as a why? seller want a 338? It blew my mind. I'm like, that's for buyers. It's not right. for sellers. Well, and that's so. what it, it's funny you say that because it, 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 cause we're seeing it uh, a, a lot. And, and, yeah. I'm, and again, you know, it, it's, it's, Google's a blessing and a curse. You know, it, it, yes. we, we do a lot of, well, I'm certain you do a lot more of it, but straightening people's, um, <laughs> assumptions out on what they want. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is the different levels of deals. Like, what is, it seems as though your, your micro businesses, you know, look, this is going to be a, a traditional, Asset or stuff, traditional asset sale. Let's just leave it at that. But where are the thresholds that you're seeing complexity layered on? Okay, so you got your main street transactions, which are generally what a million dollars or less. Although that number is getting getting stretched these days because of inflation, and we don't see too much complexity in a main street deal. Main street deals are generally asset deal straight up or stock deal. Although you get to the higher end of that main street deal, you will see some complexity. Now you get anywhere above a million dollar deal. You see complexity. You see issues. Give you another example. Got a call the other day from an attorney, from a broker, broker in Arizona. He has a business he's selling with that an attorney owns. However, she happens to be in labor. This just happened last week. And she's physically <laughs> in labor on the day they want to analyze the purchase agreement. It's about a $3 million deal. So I'm looking at this purchase agreement and it, 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 and when you say complexity, I look immediately at the tax issues when I look at a purchase agreement. And the first thing I saw on this deal, on a $3 million deal, was a $500,000 allocation to a non-compete. Uh. Folks, that's ordinary income to a seller. I've never in my 25-year career seen a $500,000 allocation to a non-compete. And I do deals 20 million, 50 million, 60 million, 100 million. I've never seen that number. So you start to see those issues, those complex 
concepts and non-competes not complex, but yeah. the tax allocation can be and the negotiation for it can be. And that was a $3 million deal. By reducing that down to $100,000, which is still sure. unrealistic, that saved the client $80,000 in taxes. Well worth my couple hours of looking at that purchase agreement for her while she's sitting delivering her baby. So you see that complexity kind of kick in once you get above that million dollar range or when there's potentially real estate involved. Because then we have some issues we can flex with from a tax perspective. So, Well, from an allocation of purchase price, we'll we'll go down there. And and the funny thing is – Two, one thing that you you said a way well a long time ago, you know you you take that that uh, allocation that fi- furniture fixtures and equipment take it to book. I mean you've saved a massive amount of taxes and 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 I've used that that that's in the letter of it when we counter, you know if we're, if we're at a stalemate no it's because of you yeah um I guess. Can you talk a little bit about the allocation of purchase price? And and if I'm if I'm if I just heard that that allocation of the non-compete, they're sitting there saying, "Well, why is that a problem?" That that I mean, we we just negotiated this out. Um, why you know that they, they think it's a I don't want to say a game, but you know this is a negotiation, and we're kind of moving our pieces around. Can you talk about the the ramifications of making really poor judgments on that eighty five ninety four? And that's the problem, you know. In early on in a transaction, and a seller is negotiating with a buyer, they don't necessarily don't often necessarily think about the tax ramification. They're just seeing that high dollar they're going to get for the company, right. and that's where the mistake comes in. Because how is the allocation being crafted? Who's in charge of it? And like you just said, what's the framework you're going to utilize maybe in your letter of intent? Is it book value to the assets that are on my book? Sellers, if we're using book value and that's what's on your balance sheet, you are not paying taxes on book value. That is your tax-free basis that you can return to yourself. Everything above that up to the original cost of the item is going to be depreciation recapture which is traditionally ordinary income, but there are some categories around depreciation recapture. Everything above its original cost, which is rare in an asset sale, is going to be capital gain. Now, he, Ed mentions 8594. You mentioned 8594. That's the IRS form that should be completed at a closing. Keep in mind, that form is not signed by either party. Either party can, if it's not discussed, and it's not part of the deal. And I'm going to give you an example that just happened a week ago. And I I blew my lid. But that 8594, a buyer's 8594 doesn't have to match a seller's. And that's how we report the allocation to the Internal Revenue Service. You are telling the Internal Revenue Service what seven categories of assets you allocated to in the deal. And how much you allocated and how much the fair market value is. The IRS wants to see, are you allocating more or less than its fair market value? Folks, you got to be really, really careful. Here's my example. We sold a janitorial cleaning company. This was like an under $2 million deal. We had the allocation set in the asset purchase agreement, and we used a personal goodwill agreement. The document said each party 
will file an 8594 after closing in accordance with this allocation. Two months go by, last week happens, we get an email from the buyer. I don't have any doc, and I didn't represent the buyer. I don't have any documents. I don't know what our allocation is. I need all this information. The sellers trying to cut their costs did not want to have us respond very much. We were unaware there was this communication going back and forth. The seller sends the buyer the fair market value of all the assets the buyer bought. That was not our agreed allocation. I immediately jumped in, sent them all proof of the documents, mostly showing book value. I hope to God they don't have a dispute now because now the buyer can say, well, why is the fair market value so much higher than what we allocated? And I want this. I don't, I hope to God they don't go there. So sellers, you got to be so careful with the information that is given to the parties, LOI, during due diligence, during purchase agreements, and after a closing. So why, one of the things that has always struck me is why, why doesn't the 8594 get signed? Why, you would think of all the documents that, that the, you know, the, the, the taxable structure, you would think that that the the service would would demand that, you know? Interesting because it's a form. So a lot of IRS forms don't get signed, they just get attached to our returns. Yeah. And the 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 history behind the form says that the parties don't have to agree. That the parties technically don't have to agree. And they can file whatever they want. And if they file differently, the IRS has the right to audit them and determine what fair market value is. So that's why maybe they try to avoid the fact that if they required signatures back in the day, parties mm-hmm. may never have agreed and no one yeah. would have signed. I don't know. That's a well, great question because I don't know yeah. the answer to it. But that's the history of it. And that's what people don't know is that you actually don't have to agree, but I don't recommend that. And of course you no, don't either. Sure. We recommend everybody agreeing. Well, the funny thing is I, in all my years, I've never heard of the service coming back on on that. Have, have you ever bumped into that? Yeah, the only way, we never ran into it. You know, again, because look, when sellers use people like you, people like us, they're generally, they're, they're protecting themselves from those questions of audit. But what the IRS would do is they would recharacterize the allocation and say, well, you can't put this on goodwill. You got to put this on the assets. And if they, if they audited a transaction, that's what they would be looking for is a recharacterization of the allocation. And then your client would get a tax bill. You may not ever hear about it. I may not ever hear about it, but it may be happening out there to our clients. I got it. So you had talked about C-Corps and I, I, years ago, I saw more and more of them, not so much these days. So, but nevertheless, I, I think it would be remiss not to talk about the QSBS. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great topic for sellers out there and for buyers out there. When I represent a buyer or I represent someone going into business, we help them incorporate their companies. We're going to talk to them about Section 1202 of the code. This This is for potentially buyers of stock, also for sellers of stock. 1202 is called Qualified Small Business Stock. It is stock of a C corporation, which is a non-flow through entity. If you have stock of a C corporation, 
under code section 1202, depending upon when you created the company, when you were issued the stock, how long you held the stock for, you can possibly sell the stock of your company and not pay tax on the gain whatsoever. It is a gain exclusion under section 1202. Now you're right, we didn't see a lot of C corporations after the tax code was passed in the 80s with the creation of subchapter S, which is where S corporations come from. However, in 2017, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when the C corporation rate was dropped down to 21%, all of a sudden, we saw some conversions to C corporations and some incorporation of C corporations. And now what I see, because of the knowledge of 1202, is we convert some companies that were never a C, we convert them from an S to a C, and then if that company holds onto that stock for five years, now we can sell that stock tax-free. This is wonderful for internal transactions, succession plans, sales to a key employee, sometimes sales to a competitor, or someone knowledgeable in the market that is okay buying the stock of the business. So 1202s are extremely advantageous. So so the look back period for the for the conversion is 5 years. The holding, we call it a holding period. You got okay. to hold that stock for 5 years to be eligible for the exclusion yeah. of the game. I got it. So for planning purposes if if and I mean, what's the likelihood that's going to change the tax codes? I mean, granted, crystal ball, but it, what's the likelihood that's going to change? So 1202 has changed over the years. In fact, let me um, let me explain that. To, uh, where did I have it? I had it in front of me a minute ago. Let me find my – oh, here it is. Here's my, here's my QSBS chart. It's changed a little bit. So I don't think 1202 will ever go away, but it does change. So if the shares were acquired after September 27, 2010 – it's a 100% exclusion. If the shares were acquired between February of 09 and September of 2010, it's a 75% exclusion. If the shares were acquired before 09, it's a 50% exclusion. So my answer to that question is 1202 is here to stay, but the exclusion rates can change with legislation. I got it. So one of, in my notes here, I wanted to talk about the 1202G. Which, which has something to, and, and I don't, I have no idea what this, I, I've never even heard of this, that, that there's something that the QSBS works for pass-through entities. It does. So a pass-through entity like an S corporation, a 1202G can work for uh, S corporation, which is otherwise known as a pass-through. You've right. got to be careful though. You cannot transfer during the holding period that stock cannot be transferred to a partnership or another type of vehicle. So 1202G, you got to be very careful with. We're just now starting to see some uh, potential uh, transactions and some uh, legislation around 1202G. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of fans out now that we're seeing more of those. Yeah, because I, I, because I, I'm – we're talking to a lot of sellers that are sitting here saying, all right, you know, the next couple of years are probably going to be a little bit bumpy. It might be time to retrench and kind of get our plans back in order. And, you know, there's still time to, to, to have a great exit. You know, does it make more sense to do the restructure and the five year hold or do the 
to G if you're a, a, an S corp. Yeah. It's one of the things that we will look at because, you know, one thing we say about C corporations and a lot of people don't understand this, that a C corporation, you know, you have this 21% tax rate, but are you really paying company taxes ever in your C corporation or are you withdrawing the profits via salary, bonuses, however you're withdrawing them? You're not paying those taxes anyway. So sometimes it's more advantageous for us to make the conversion because their tax rate is less if they do leave profits in the company as opposed to an S corporation subjecting yourself to the, to the scrutiny of 1202G and then paying a higher tax rate while you're operating the S corporation. So those are some of the things we look at when we say – is it better to do a 1202G, hold on to my S-Corp stock and face a little bit additional scrutiny, or should I go a 1202 route, straight up C-Corporation, run the company? If I have profits in there, I'm only paying tax at 21% flat rate anyway. So those are the analyses that we look at. I got it. In one of the sessions I sat, I went back to my notes and I saw a tax-free reorganization. But I, for the life of me, I can't remember what in the world that was. What is that? So tax-free reorganizations are – so in a nutshell, and a high-level overview of that uh, because they're, they work in certain industries. And it's when a seller is going to retain equity in the new – Essentially, in the new company, I got it. that's I got it. when a tax-free reorg of an S corp can work. I got it. And I got it. We form a new company to hold the stock of the target company, buying the new company's stock. So the old company, you got to be careful because, in general, majority of the sellers that I deal with in the industries I deal with, about eighty to ninety percent of the time, they're selling out in whole, and they're yeah. not taking an equity piece. So the rewards are not a possibility for them. However, if you're a seller and you're listening to the podcast today and you're thinking of, yeah, I'm going to sell out, but I'm going to keep a 20% interest in my business. Okay. If you're an S corporation, you are a potential candidate for an F reorganization. We see a ton of this in the insurance industry. And we saw more than I've ever seen in my life in 2021 in the insurance industry we call them roll-ups, where yeah. they're rolling the company up into a new company, but you, the seller, are taking an equity piece in the new right. company. So yeah. that's when the reorgs are a possibility. If you've got a seller that's going to sell out in full, that's not an option. Yeah, I got it. So I'm looking at, um, I guess, like uh, rapid-fire questions. I I'm trying – there's different scenarios that we're seeing a lot of, you know, selling to a kid, selling to a key employee. We're seeing more and more ESOPs. ESOPs are coming, are, are getting more prevalent and then selling to a competitor and a strategic. I'm just kind of curious to know, like, you know, here, if I'm selling to my kid, here's the top three things you need to keep in mind. If I'm selling to my employee, this is the top three things you need to keep in mind. So yeah. how about, can you, can you kind of run through? Those scenarios? Yeah. And you know what we start with when we look at that for a client is we, again, we like to do what we call our tax minimization analysis. We are showing them the effects of the yeah. three different, you know, yeah. Are you selling to a family member? Are you selling to an employee? Are you selling to an outside competitor? And what are the ways that we do that? And how does that look for you? And what's your taxation there? And we show our clients down to the penny 
what they're going to receive on these. And let's just break them down. If you're going to sell to a family member or a child, typically we're going to structure that as a stock redemption where typically 99% of the time I'm going to structure it as a stock redemption, which is where you are using the profits of the business to pay yourself, the seller over time for your stock. So what we will do with the child is we will gift them one share or they will buy a share with a bonus that we give them. And then we redeem all of the owner's share. So you, the owner, get capital gain treatment on anything above your basis. You have a little bit of interest income on that because there's a note given to you for a certain period of time, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever it may be. The child, on the other hand, is running the company. They're paying your note. They don't get a deduction for the note, but they get a deduction for the interest expense. It's a very clean, easy transaction with a child. With an employee, it's about 50-50 because here's the difference. If we do a redemption, the, the, the person within the company who's helping, who's paying the note for you, they're not getting any basis in their stock. So if they go to sell their stock down the road, they have no basis. It's all going to be capital gain. So sometimes an employee would rather say, no, I want to buy the stock under a stock purchase agreement and I'm going to go get a loan or I'm just going to bonus myself out money. And then what's that employee doing? They're building their tax-free basis for down the road if they ever sell the stock. But again, remember, we might sell assets down the road. So all that stock talk goes out the window. So we like to, those are, those are two of the primary ways to deal with an employee or a child. And then of course you've got, you've got some other mechanisms as well. And you talk about ESOPs. I think ESOPs are extremely beneficial when, and I represent some companies that have ESOPs. The benefit to ESOPs is maybe you don't have a successor in place and you've got just a core group of employees been there forever and you want them to own a piece of the company, if not all of it in the future. That's when an ESOP is the best way to go. The negative to an ESOP is the company has to be valued every year. There's costs associated with an ESOP. So now you're dealing with a valuation of the company every year. And all of a sudden you also should not be, you should be cleaning up your books and records to avoid all of the seller discretionary expenses so that they're not part of that valuation each year or you just muddy the water. They're good in certain circumstances. Right. So, I mean, how far in advance do you plan this kind of stuff? Man, you know, the ideal answer is between three to five years out. Ideally, if someone talks to me and and they're three to five years out, I mean, it's just beautiful. It gives us time to, first of all, you know, and as, I, as you see on my credentials, I'm a CPA. We are a full service accounting firm. Number one, clean up the financials. Get your books and records right. And I know there's probably going to be people listening to the podcast that are like, good God, Roman's right. Clean up your books. It's going to take a while. And we do it for a lot of companies. We get in there, make sure your books and records are right. Because how many companies have a set of books on their computer oh. they're running and their accountant is doing all the back-end cleanup at the end of the year on their set of books. Yet the company's set of books are still not right. And how many times we sell a business and they don't want us talking to their accountant. They don't want their accountant to know. So now all of a sudden, we're dealing with a messy set of books. 
Yep. So three to five years out, start cleaning them up. Seller discretionary expenses that you can really start to cut down over that time period is extremely beneficial. You don't want to get into these arguments with potential buyers of, well, where's this income coming from? Or where's these expenses yeah. coming from? And you don't want to have to explain all of that. So that's yeah. ideally what's a net. In reality, most sellers are cleaning up the books within a couple of months of listing the company or after listing the company to be no, realistic. Right. Right. <laughs> so You're right. we don't love it. But hey, you guys are all giving me more work when I got to clean up books for three years. <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> so, so what, um, one of the things I, I really enjoyed was when you kind of did your little crystal ball. This is what, this is where the puck's heading in the next, you know, in the next few years. Um, I mean, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, we're in desperate need of new tax legislation. You know, our, we had some major tax legislation during COVID, which was completely separate from the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was probably one of the largest ones. And every year in the history of my career, I'm, I'm assuming my father's as well, we always get tax legislation at the end of the year. And now it's just been non-existent for the past year or two. So, you know, we're due. We know we're due for a rewrite of the code. Um, I don't see, of course, with we, you know, of course, we follow the elections. We follow what's happening in Congress. Um, you know, we don't see much changing now over the next year or two because of the division in Congress. Um, so the next election cycle in two years will be extremely, extremely crucial. Now, crystal ball speaking, as inflation hits us, it continues to hit a little bit. As interest rates go up, valuations of companies go down. It is an inverse relationship. So we still have at least one, maybe two interest rate increases. So valuations of companies on an interest rate perspective are going to come down. If I'm an investor and I want to make a certain dollar for my company and interest rates go up, I have to pay less for my company. It's a very simple concept. So right. that's something we have to look for for the next six month cycle is we are going to have some pressure, downward pressure on the valuation of companies. Set all this real estate stuff aside. Some states are having still good times. Some states are not having good times. That's what's going to come for us in the next six months. From a tax legislation perspective, you know, there's some work to do because we know the flat C corporates have been with us a while. I don't think that's going to stick much longer. I think we'll see a graduated rate come yep. back into play. And then, of course, we'll have a rework of the individual tax rates. And when normally, look back in history, when we start to have depression type times, we will get some tax incentives. So we're going to start to see some of those things come back again. Yep. Um, maybe some bonus depreciational tax legislation, things on that nature. We will see that maybe by the end of 2023, 2024. Let's see where this recession may take us. Yeah. So as, as working with, you know, especially, you know, everybody's talking about baby boomers and, and I mean, that's nothing new. Um, I think everybody's, they try to time the market and I'm not certain, you know, I'm not certain right now is the best time to time the market. I know that's a, a silly thing for a deal guy to say. Um, but I just, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, if I'm a buyer, I'm trying to look out you know, five-year payback of, of of my investment. You know, does 
you know, if I'm a buyer, am I aggressively looking to buy, especially if I have access to, to, I don't want to say cheaper capital, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to reconcile the two together on when is the optimal time to sell? Like if I'm a, if, if I'm 70 years old and poor health, you know, I may not want to wait this thing out. Um, but if I'm, if I'm in good health and I'm rocking along, well, this might, I, I might, it might be a time to, to, to do some planning. And, and I guess I, I want your, your thoughts on that before we go. Good point. Because in the last year to two years, we've seen some of the most activity we've ever seen in our careers. We know that. We know that, mm-hmm. um, selling was off the chart. And I'll tell this to, from what I see, and I see deals every day. I get two to three calls a day for new transactions. And that is no lie. This morning, actually last night, at about 10 o'clock at night, I had a $14 million offer come in on a company from overseas buying a U.S.-based company. Folks, it's every day. So the market is still as hot as it was. However, and I tell my wife this a lot, I'm like, closings are being stretched out. We're not mm-hmm. seeing the, the, the fire closings that we were seeing at the end of the year last year. Everybody wanted to get done before the election, before there's potential new tax changes. We didn't have that rush this year. It's still a good time to be thinking about selling your company. It's still a very good time. Fine, interest rates have increased a little bit. It really hasn't put them out of anybody's financing capabilities, to be honest. Now, we get a year down the road and we're into a, which we've been in a recession technically for a while, over a year actually, but we get another year down the road in this economy and we might see, it may not be the best time, to be honest. And it also is industry dependent. I'm doing a lot of transactions in the automobile industry right now. There's a lot of activity going on because honestly, this concept is the same from the the comment is the same from all of them in the auto industry. Mm -hmm. The older owner dealers are very scared of the new models that were created during COVID for auto sales across the country and they are selling out. So if you are in an auto industry segment, your industry is extremely active and now is the time. You will miss your window if you don't do something now. I'm That's it. Buyers that wanted to get in the industry slow down their deals because of where interest rates are and the, and the worry about what's happening with that industry. So if you're a seller of a business, you've got to really know the pulse of your industry. Is it changing? If it's changing, does that influence your decision to market your company now rather than later? No, that, those are great points. Well, my friend, I want to be sensitive to, your, to our time. Um, my my last question's the same for everybody, and I, I think I, I have an idea of what it's going to be, but nevertheless, I'll ask it. Um, what's the one piece of advice that you would give our listeners that would have the most immediate impact on their business? Prepare. I yeah. am an Eagle Scout. That's not on my <laughs> that's not <laughs> on my designations there, but the motto of an Eagle Scout is to be prepared. And I can't tell you that uh, enough. Be prepared. And you know, we we there's a lot that goes into that that those two words. Yeah. But the more you prepare, the better this whole process will be. You know what? And and I'm with you. I I wish, you know, being in the exit planning space and and all the associations that I belong to, I, I, 
I assumed at some point someone would commission some empirical data that, you know, by being prepared, this is, this is what, this is the premium I got for my business, or this is, you know, I increased the likelihood of selling it by this. But, you know, you would think that that would be, I don't want to say common sense, but to me, that's probably the most valuable information for a business owner on why you should prepare. But, but anyway, we'll, we'll get there. So, my friend, um, what's the best way we can keep in touch or get in touch with you? Oh, that's great. Yeah, to get in touch with us, our website is taxplanning.com. Our phone number is 618-997-3436. Or they can always, anyone can shoot me an email. It gets immediately seen by me. And whether I respond or one of my staff responds, and it's rbasie at taxplanning.com. We're on Facebook we blog twice a week on Facebook on our Facebook page, so pretty easy to find, and our website really drives you to, to everywhere you need to go. And we'll make sure that we have every place that you are featured on the uh, uh, in the show notes. So, my friend, you know, uh, I've been I've always enjoyed listening to you at the associations, and and you certainly knocked it out of the park on this one. I appreciate uh, your time. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. I very much appreciate it as well. See you at the next conference. Right on. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the How to Sell Your Business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO Inc. All rights reserved.